Loud and clear? Somebody stole my Bible. And I'm not kidding. I think you took it. <laughs> oh, Pete. And I'm not kidding. My Bible has disappeared. So, uh, yeah, this, this morning it has disappeared. So I don't know what you guys, what sort of business you guys got going on in here. All right? Probably. Sure, James. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Word of God, and uh, it's got a PLCO cover, and it says Hebrews. But I do have one up here, so I can um, I can use that. And uh, we will let let's open up in a word of prayer. It's it's okay. We I have a Bible and. I, I suppose it doesn't really matter uh, if I use mine or somebody else's. Um, let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, uh, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your worthiness. Thank you for your goodness, your perfection, Lord. It's so cool, Lord, to be able to um, deliver the word that you have given me over the last few weeks. And um, I really thank you, Lord, that you would consider me useful at all. Um, so, thank you, God. And I pray, Lord, that my words would like glorify you, Lord, and that um, I would do it in an honoring way, Lord, in a respectful manner, diligently, Lord, um, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. So speak through me, Lord, and open all of our hearts that we might hear what you have to say. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, thank you for inviting me back. I, I really appreciate it. And my wife and I love to <laughs> see everybody here. That's Mr. Litovich's. Some funny joke, I guess, here. This is found downstairs. Maybe, maybe it was me. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Um, before I begin, I, I just want to I, I want to give you uh, some background. It's going to be very brief. My my background for this, um, I have never written my sermon out in six years or seven years. I've never written it out, uh, but for some reason, I think the Lord has been speaking to me in a in a in a new way and in a different way, and. Um, and you'll understand where I'm coming from in a little while. I'm going to be super transparent with you this morning. I'm going to be real. Um, and and I, 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 my prayer and what I've been praying is that God would um, give you guys grace and compassion, okay, to hear what you have to hear. And um, most importantly, that you would recognize that I am nobody up here except for a redeemed child of God. I, I, the, the preacher guy is, is no better than you, and no smarter than you, and by the way, just as in need of grace and forgiveness as you. So that is my objective, and I hope that that is what comes across this morning. Um, lately, and it's been a few months now, we've been going through some stuff, 
my wife and I and my family, and I am not an anxious person in the sense that like I, I, I don't suffer from like depression. I don't suffer from uh, like being downtrodden or melancholy like day by day. I'm always a very happy-go-lucky guy. The people at work are always like, dude, what are you so happy about today? And, and so I'm always like that. But lately, I, it's been different. And in matter of fact, and I'm not trying to be funny here, a couple of my students last week pointed out that I have two bald spots on the back of my head. All right? And I'm not even close to old enough to start the bald yet. All right? Gee whiz. But it's, 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 it's weird. And I, I think there's an underlying stress or anxiety going on deep down. And I think God is starting to show me. And he's purging me. And he's pruning me. And so um, bear with me this morning, I pray. And uh, let me be totally transparent. I'm Steve. I've traveled the world, macheted my way through the Amazon, hiked glaciers in the Alps, and climbed ancient walls in Europe. I can landscape, build things here and there, and I'm pretty good at fixing cars. I've gone to college, received degrees, and even scored a wife, beautiful wife, with whom I've had three beautiful children, girls. I'm terrible in math, decent in science, and an expert in sinning. And I tell you, I'm an expert in sinning. You heard that correctly. Are you shocked? Are you perplexed? Thank you. Who wants me out of the pulpit? Thank you. The truth is that I'm terribly in need of grace. The degrees, travel experiences, and even my family can't remedy the problem of sin. Church, Hope you can understand something here. In this moment, the preacher man this morning is broken, ashamed, and in desperate need of hope, forgiveness, love. I come to you as one of you, a mere human, struggling in this life and desiring to be worth something. I'm struggling in life right now. I've been confounded and overwhelmed by thoughts of unworthiness. Even right now as I speak, am I worthy to be up here bringing this message to you? I'm vexed because I genuinely desire to be worth something for my wife, my kids, my co-workers, my church, my God. These things I desire but I can't seem to achieve. I feel like I'm trying so hard to find my value in being a good dad or husband, even being a strong leader in the church and in my community, but I'm failing. And brothers and sisters, it hurts. I mean, it really hurts. It's beginning to take a toll on me. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. As I'm saying these things, I challenge you to introspection. I challenge you to self-examination and humility. Many of you are feeling this right now, maybe. Brother, quit whining up there and go on with it. Or brother, aren't you supposed to be teaching us? Doesn't quite sound like you are above reproach. Please, church, bear with me for a bit. Let me be real with you. Let me share with you through this sermon what God has been teaching me over the last month or so about Him. Allow me to express what the Lord has shown me concerning His grace and my brokenness, my need for Him. Permit me to share with you that our sin, our imperfections, our shame, our hopelessness, etc., etc., produce feelings of unworthiness that can only be relieved and ultimately repaired by gospel sufficiency. You heard that. Gospel sufficiency. The gospel is sufficient to reverse that. The gospel is sufficient 
to redeem. To bring a broken man to his feet. So I could do one thing that's bring honor and glory to the Lord. That's it. So here's my proposition this morning. The gospel, or what we call the good news of Jesus, is sufficient to encourage, satisfy, and awaken those most unqualified and unworthy. The good news of Jesus is sufficient to encourage you, to satisfy you, and to awaken you. Even you and I, those most unworthy and most unqualified. We want to see gospel sufficiency in light of our supposed unworthiness. If you are feeling depressed, discouraged, unpopular, ashamed, unnecessary, unwanted, too far gone, entangled by the grip of sin, addicted, unworthy, let me in this word bring you to the foot of the cross. Let the Holy Spirit bring you to the foot of the cross today. Let's together come to the feet of Jesus. Let's come to Him and open His word in humble submission and genuine worship. In spite of all of our shortcomings and needs, we've talked about some of them. I've shared some of those with you. Let's take the spotlight off of me and off of you and let's put it on the all-sufficient one. We will do this by examining six different texts praying I can get through them. I'm going to show you text in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Each Old Testament text will have a New Testament counter, uh, counterpart or complement. We want to see how human unworthiness can be counteracted and amended by gospel truth. Turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. It's a familiar passage. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10. Now forgive me if you uh, are still turning and I start to read. It's just seven passages this morning. I, I want to make sure that we, we move through them. So Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10. And here we are going to see conflict in Moses, and what he will do as far as speaking and being a voice for the people. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. You... When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And we will stop there. And we will go through the rest of the text briefly. Um, let, let's get some background here. I know you guys are familiar with this. You have Moses, a man from the tribe of Levi, who was, like, in a sense, drawn out of the water is what his name means. We, see, we read that in Exodus chapter 2. Moses is disheartened here. He's angered by uh, the mistreatment of his fellow Israelites. If this is, I'm, I'm going backwards here. I'm going backwards before Moses flees to Midian. He kills an Egyptian for mistreating one of his own. So for, be, for fear of being caught and broke, brought to Pharaoh, Moses flees to the land of Midian where he finds a wife and works as a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. 
While tending the flock one day, God appears to Moses from a burning bush. God establishes himself as a holy, holy. Take off your sandals for you are on holy ground, God says to Moses. I am the God of your father. Look at how, how God comforts Moses while reassuring him of God's covenantal promise that he would remember them. God has made a covenant with his people. I will remember you, my people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And look at how God reassures Moses here. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I know their suffering. I have seen the oppression. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people out of Egypt. Moses responds this way. Who am I? Who am I, Lord? Now think about it for a minute. You can understand Moses' trepidation. Moses was raised in Egypt. He, he was raised in royalty. Sort of disconnected from these people that are being slaves, that are being servants. Moses murders somebody, is full of fear. Now, I've never murdered anybody. I've done some bad things. But I've never murdered anybody. I can imagine what he must have been feeling. So he flees. I mean, he leaves the land and he goes to Midian. How could this man be used? At this point, he's just a shepherd. This is shepherd. So Moses objects multiple times. And it goes like this. Who am I? He says to the Lord. I don't know your name. What am I going to tell them? What is your name? What am I to say? Lord, they won't believe me. They won't believe me. But they will not listen to me. But Lord, I'm not eloquent. Lord, I'm slow with speech. God reassures this shepherd who has fled because of murder. Reassures him this way. Verse 12, I will be with you. Verse 14, here's my name. I'm the great I am. I am Yahweh. Anything good... Anything separated from human sinfulness, I am. That's my name. And that's what you will tell them. Verse 17, I promise that I will bring you out of Egypt. Verse 4 through 9 of the, second, of the next chapter, God supports Moses and promises to show himself through various signs. I mean, the Lord is responding each and every issue... That Moses has, the Lord is responding and reassuring him. And then he says this to Moses in verse 11. Who made man's mouth? I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to speak. In verse 14 he says, Aaron will go with you and speak for you. Church, in this text the Lord encourages Moses and awakens him to a new understanding of the great I Am. It's not about Moses. It's about the one who will deliver on his promise to remember his people and bring them out of bondage so they can honor and worship Almighty God. It's never been about Moses. It's about the great I Am who will work through this man who is slow to speech. Now let's look in the New Testament at a very similar passage in certain ways. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 26. 
John chapter 1 and verse 26, we're going to meet a man named John the Baptist. Sort of like Moses in a sense. He's going to be a voice for God. He's going to speak to the people and prepare the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is called to bear witness or testify. That's a legal term, just like it's used in the Old Testament. You would have a testimony in a court of law, in a legal sense, to, to determine whether there is truth in the matter of not, or not. And so John is here to testify. Here John has been called, and he applies the, the prophetic text in, in, this, in this section, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to testify on behalf of the ultimate Redeemer, the final Savior who would deliver Israel and the world from their darkness. That is John's responsibility right now. He is not responsible to deliver the people. John can't do that. He is incapable of doing that. And you and I cannot do that either. So if you have a friend or a co-worker that you're praying for, or a son or a daughter or a parent, you do not have the power yourself to change that heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit can do that though. Now, John has quite a call and a responsibility here in this text. Let's read John 1, 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is what John says in this section. I am not the Christ. I'm a nobody. In fact, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness, as it says in Isaiah. John doesn't even compare himself to another person. He says, I'm just a voice. That's all I am. Verse 26 and 27. See, John says, I I just baptized with water, but one will come who will do much more greater things. The one coming after me He who was before me comes to take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God who will take the sins of the world. I can, I'm I'm merely baptizing once you have made a profession for this one. But he will baptize in the sense that he will wash away your sins with with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. That's the lowest thing, you guys know that, that a slave could do. John places himself below that. Not worthy to do that. Verse 30, John says, he ranks before me. I didn't even recognize him. Though I probably knew him, though John probably knew Jesus, I mean, it was his cousin, but yet he didn't recognize him. But after the baptism, when when God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are all there at one, John's eyes are opened and he sees clearly. In Matthew, we read the account when John goes to baptize Jesus. You know what John says, right? I have need to be baptized by you. You, Lord Jesus, want me to baptize you? No. No, I, I, can, I can see it in my head. No. 
Messiah. No. I have need to be baptized by you. You know what the Lord says? Permit it to be so. But Lord, I'm a sinner. You're the spotless one. I'm in need of the washing and the regeneration. You have been and always will be perfect. I'm not qualified to baptize you. Jesus says, yes. Baptize me. Permit it to be so. I will humble myself and I will identify with sinners. You all know that Jesus did not take any sin at that moment, and nor did he ever sin. But you know what this baptism does? It foreshadows something even greater. Because not long after that, you know what will happen? Christ will get the true baptism into death. He will quite literally bear the entire world's sins upon him as he dies on a cross. John the Baptist concludes three different occasions that he had with Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist says, and you guys all know this. He must what? Increase, and I must decrease. I'm just John the Baptist. I came out eating grasshoppers. And I baptized the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Oh, Lord, you baptize me. Jesus reassures him as he always does, as he has reassured you, as he has reassured me. That's what I did. I came for sinners like you. In this text, the Lord uses a mere man to prepare the way for Jesus and proclaim the need for repentance. John, though he was, with Je- he was Jesus' cousin and from a priestly family, felt unworthy to baptize Jesus and even speak about him. However, Jesus encourages John permits the baptism, and even reassures John later on while John was in prison. Remember that? Let us take a tip from John and remember this text. It's not about John. It's about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. So another familiar passage. And here we're going to see the humble, the unworthy condition when God's holiness is on display and man's sin is recognized. Let's start in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from uh, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. In this passage, we see how our sin is made known when God's holiness is recognized. Isaiah has this great throne room theophany, we call it, right? And it cripples him and reduces him. 
Isaiah is so overwhelmed by God's greatness, by his holiness, by God's perfection, by God's set-apartness. That cries of humility, unworthiness, filthiness, expel from John. Isaiah, sorry. He sees this scene, and God's holiness is on display. And Isaiah just can't help but say this, Woe is me! I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember what we said. The gospel is sufficient to encourage, satisfy, and awaken even the most unqualified and unworthy. We know in verse 6 and 7, one of these angelic beings flies to Isaiah, holds a live coal to his mouth, and the purification ceremony begins. What is God doing here in this moment? God has prepared Isaiah for cleansing and commissioning. The very one who is undone, shamed, brought low, is about to be dispatched to bring tough words to God's people. This is what's interesting about this. The very one, Isaiah, who had sinned with his lips will now utilize those very lips to bring forth God's message. Imagine that. And I thought about that for a minute, guys. I thought about, have I sinned with my hands? Have I sinned with my feet? Where have you gone? Have you gone to place places to sin? Have you used your mind to sin? Have you used your mouth to sin? And I love this text shows that Isaiah sinned with his mouth amidst the people who also sinned with their mouths. And yet God says, I will purify you right now. Your sins are forgiven. Now go. You are commissioned to take my message to the world. To the people of Israel. What a glorious, marvelous, and gracious God. And that's why when I came here this morning, brothers and sisters, I felt that sense of unworthiness. Because I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of, of, of a wretched heart. Despicable, deceitful, disgusting. But do you remember what happened afterwards with Isaiah? He says, send me, Lord, I will go. Send me. The Lord gave me that confidence this week. He said, you go. You go there Sunday morning. You've sinned with your heart. You've sinned with your hands. You've sinned with your lips. Go. Purification has been done. Your King, your Savior, took the weight of your sin upon Him on the cross. You can go forth in victory. Amen. And it's a process, brothers and sisters. You understand this. Sanctification is positional, right? Sanctification is positional. You understand this. That, that I, I have been sanctified once for all in, in, in the very act of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising on the third day. But it's also a pro- process. Day by day, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's learn from what we're reading here because it is a process. I have not arrived yet. No, 
Not even close. But the Lord can still use me? Come on. Come on. Why am I up here right now? I would horrify you with details of my sin over the last month. And I'm sorry. But the Lord wants to send me because I stand on a firm foundation of Jesus. That's the gospel. Kids, do you understand that? There's kids in here, teenagers, older people. That's the gospel. It's good news. Jesus has always been in the business of taking people that were blind and making them see. He's always been in the business of taking people that were dead and bringing them to life. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke 18.9 He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We know this from Abraham and we know this from the great book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, that you are not justified by your works. You are not justified by your righteousness and I am not justified by my ability to keep the law. The law out there, the law in the Bible. That's not why I'm justified. I'm justified because of one person, Christ. The Pharisee in this parable and probably other Pharisees that were watching this arrogantly prayed to God to tell the Lord how righteous he was. No ounce of humility, but the tax collector. The tax collector. A despised occupation. Hated probably by many. Guilty of probably stealing. Undeserving of any mercy or grace or forgiveness. Knows his condition. He's condemned. His posture and behavior complement his words. As if to say, Lord, I've got nothing. I'm done apart from you. I don't deserve your grace. I have nothing really to offer what does he do? He beats his breast and he says, have mercy on me. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you got on your knees and cried out and said, Lord, just have mercy on me. 
Brothers and sisters, you know how often I pray, Lord, give me a better understanding of your word. Help me to be theologically sound. Lord, help me to be able to exegete the passage properly. How often do I get on my knees in my bedroom and just pray and say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your mercy, God. I'm done. I got nothing apart from you, Lord. I have nothing apart from you. I can do no good apart from him and his grace. How often do I cry out? And I'm real with the Lord. He knows my heart. He knows the intentions of my heart. He knows what's in your mind. And yet for some reason, we like to be proud as if we have it all together. Take a a tip from the tax collector here in this parable. Lastly, we're going to look at two texts showing how total, I love these two texts, total outcasts deserving of nothing receive grace and a hope in a future. And I, I can identify with these because that's how I feel. I feel like a, an outcast. Go to the book of Ruth. Ruth is before 1 Samuel. And I I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just this whole entire week planning this, I could never find the book of Ruth after I was like preparing. So, somewhere toward the beginning of the Bible. Ruth is an outcast deserving of nothing. And yet, we'll see what happens at the end. Remember, I'm repeating myself here, but remember the proposition at the beginning, right? The good news of Jesus is sufficient to encourage, to satisfy, and awaken even the most unqualified and the most unworthy. Now, throughout Ruth, we see Jesus time and time again. From Boaz as the kinsman redeemer to Ruth's offspring, Obed, who from Obed comes David, from David comes the Messiah. It's spectacular seeing Christ throughout the book of Ruth. This story, I think, has something for all of us in the room. Consider Ruth. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's without a husband. Her husband passed away. She's got no male heir, no son. Nothing. She's helpless. She's without a job. And frankly, to be a female without a husband and without a male heir at that time, she's got no hope in her future. See, Ruth in a sense, is a picture of us, a picture of me. Foreign, undeserving of any future, any inheritance. What did I do to gain any sort of eternal inheritance? I mean, I, I think you and I know the Bible well enough, right? The Bible says this, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That's my inheritance. That's what I deserve. But in steps Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Boaz extends enormous grace, enormous mercy toward Ruth. He shows her compassion. I want to read uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was, uh, young man, uh, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman. 
who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they uh, are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? We'll stop there. Levitical law states that she can glean from the corners of the field, right? She can glean from the corners of the field. Get something. Boaz says, no, 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 no. You, you go with the rest of them. You, you can glean from there. Oh, and by the way, when the sun gets hot, when the sun gets hot, and you're weary from your work, go get some water. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me, what? Beside still waters. Christ has always been in the business of taking dead men and bringing them to life. Taking people like Ruth and saying, you think you're just going to get the scraps? Glean in that field. Think you're going to have to wait to the end of the day to get a little water from the wash basin? Grab it from the vessels. Pure water. Green pastures. That's where the Lord brings his sheep. That's where my shepherd leads me. My shepherd doesn't lead me over there even though I deserve that. I deserve to be in the arid places of of this world where it's just a wasteland. That's where I deserve to be. He says, no, come follow me. I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd. You're my sheep. Stay close to me. Stay close to me. There's a crystal clear stream here that I want you to drink from. And guess what? No need when you bend down of the wolves. No need for you to be fearful of those wolves. I'll protect you. And when you get hungry, come eat. I'll provide for you. Always. Always provide for you, Steve. You sinned against me last night. I know. Provide for you. I step in. You know, at the end of the book of Ruth, Boaz takes her to be his wife. He says, I will redeem you, Ruth. I will redeem you. I will be your kinsman redeemer. And everything that I have, my inheritance, my land, my money, my wealth, my love, is now yours, Ruth. And they have a child, and that child is Obed. From there we get David. From there we get the, the Messiah. Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Luke 18, 35. 
As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus in Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Who was Ruth? She was unworthy. She was a foreigner. What about Bartimaeus? He's a blind beggar. Church, he's a blind beggar. The story in Mark starts with Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside. Sitting by the roadside. Don't miss every detail of the Word of God. Blind, begging, sitting by the roadside. He's worthless. Bartimaeus is worthless. And as a matter of fact, people that look like Bartimaeus and still, still in this day and age, they get mistreated. And that's a child of God. Lord went on the cross for those people. Lord went on the cross for those people who are poor. Lord went on the cross for those people who are homeless right now, who suffer from mental disabilities. Lord went on the cross for those people. Shame on us for not reaching out. And here's Bartimaeus, blind and begging on the side of the road. And he hears something about this man, Jesus Christ, going by. And you know what Bartimaeus does? He, he starts to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And everybody's like, Bartimaeus, you idiot, shut up. You're blind. You, you don't, who are you? You're unworthy. Don't even, don't come near this man. Jesus says, no. Let him come. The Lord asks this wonderfully endearing question. So tender. Says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want the Lord to do for you? What do you want the Lord to do for you? I thought, this hit me hard. Because I know what Bartimaeus wants. We, We can read it in the text. He wants the Lord to have mercy on him and he wants his sight to be recovered. You know what? Jesus dispenses grace and healing. When we want God to make sure that we get a new truck, when we want God to, to, to give us the promotion at a job, and that's the only reason why we're coming to God, you've just totally have a warped understanding of the word. But when we come recognizing our unworthiness and God's worth, our undeserving nature and His worth, grace is dispensed. 
So in verse 42, Jesus heals Bartimaeus. Church, you know what the Lord says to Bartimaeus in Mark? He says, Bartimaeus, you can now see you're healed. Now go your way. Bartimaeus, you're healed. Now go your way. The next verse says this. So Bartimaeus followed Jesus on his way. When you have been hit with the gospel and you understand the wretched state that you're in and what Christ has done for you, you don't want to go on your way anymore. Your way becomes Christ's way. And, 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 and folks, I, I'll tell you, if, if Christ's way is this way, I've done this. Lord Jesus is going now. I've done this. I've veered off. I've backslidden. But I'm so thankful for the promise of our Lord. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I will never leave you, Steve. I will never forsake you. Each time he grabs my hand and pulls me back, or like the lost sheep, right? He goes and grabs me and puts me on his shoulders and brings me back on the way. See, when, when you have been hit with grace and you understand the value of the Lord and His holiness and His perfection and what He is capable of, you no longer want to go your way, or you shouldn't. Just like Bartimaeus. You want to go Christ's way. And what's interesting about this text is that Jesus has gone from the area of Galilee in the north over to an area called Perea in, in the east. He works his way down. You know where he's going, right? He's going to that hill we call Golgotha. And as he comes through Perea, he goes across the Jordan River. He comes to a city called Jericho. He meets Bartimaeus. And after that, the final destination is there. It's Jerusalem. It's the cross. Bartimaeus follows him on his way. An unworthy, blind, homeless, poor soul like Bartimaeus. That's how the story starts. Guess how the story ends? He's seeing in color, perfectly, following Jesus. That's what the gospel does. That's why it's sufficient. Because it takes blind people and gives them light, and it takes dead people and brings them to life. And the coolest part about it, and I think that you guys are all familiar with this, our life does not end when the heart stops and when the brain ceases. This life is a vapor. It's a vapor. And one day we will be in a place where the sun doesn't need to shine because the glory of the Lamb will illuminate all of heaven. And, and I get to worship Him for eternity. And you get to worship Him for eternity. Do you remember a man named Paul, Saul, who was a blasphemer, an insolent man, persecuting the church, seeking to imprison people that were going on the way? Christians. 
seeking to have them killed, was right there when that man, Stephen, was being stoned to death. An insolent man. You know what? Paul says this about himself and to Timothy. I'm the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Yet, the Lord used him, did he not? The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is sufficient to encourage, to satisfy, and to awaken those most unqualified and unworthy. This gospel truth is about Jesus. But for some reason, some infinite love that we cannot quite explain, it intricately and it affectionately involves us. I feel like God is looking to take my brokenness what I've been learning, I think he's trying to take my brokenness and bring me to the foot of the cross so that I can worship him. And then use me for his glory. I can't quite fathom this story of the gospel message with my finite human mind. But I understand enough that he wants to use me, a broken and unworthy vessel, to bring him honor and praise. I hope you, you could see the same thing. I hope whatever you're dealing with, whether it's depression or anxiety or addiction or sin, I hope you can understand that Christ died for you. He wants to use you. But we need to have the spotlight constantly on him. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you so much for this time and I thank you for your goodness. You are perfect, Lord. (laughs) Lord, you're so compassionate and merciful. And Father, when I think back on all the things that I did in this life, Lord, yet you still give me breath each day. You should have ended me a long time ago, Lord. Father, you're using me. That blows my mind. Lord, thank you that your son Jesus was a perfect example of humility and obedience. I just pray, Lord, that we would all see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel and follow hard after him. So, God, thank you so much for this time. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.